the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. So it's been a while since our last episode. I've spent the time away working, traveling, thinking, writing, and preparing a little bit for the rest of this season and thinking about where to go with Globalization Cafe in uh, years to come. But having said all that, it's time to get back down to business. It's now the 23rd of June. Early this month, we marked the 50-year anniversary of the beginning of Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. And if you remember, our last episode dealt with this issue from the Palestinian side with a fantastic interview with Taufik Haddad. And we're going to continue on that theme again today. In this, the first of a two-part discussion, I interview Jeff Halper, who's an academic, scholar, an activist, and a pretty deep thinker. He's the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition, a widely published author, and his new book is called War Against the People, Israel, the Palestinians, and Global Pacification. I spoke to Jeff via Skype, from his office in Jerusalem and I began by asking him to describe his own background and to discuss a little bit of why he got so interested in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Well, um, I grew up in the States, as you can hear, almost Canada, northern Minnesota. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was very active in the 60s, in the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement and so on. Uh, and for different reasons, uh, when the 60s collapsed, I didn't feel like staying there. And so I moved to another front in the revolution, which was here in Palestine, Israel-Palestine. And, uh, you know, in the 45 years I've been here now, I've been very active always in the Israeli peace movement, in the anti-Zionist peace movement, I should say. And um, for the last 20 years, I've headed the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. I'm an anthropologist by profession, so I taught at universities here. But uh, for the last 20 years, I've been completely full-time doing my political activism. I've written some books, and Israeli in Palestine is one of my books about our work with the occupation. My latest book is called War Against the People, which is how Israel is exporting the occupation uh, throughout the world. Um, yep. So I, I combine being an academic, although not teaching, uh, in the university, you know, what I call an engaged intellectual or a public, uh, what do they call them? Public intellectuals or activist scholars. I don't know, whatever the terms are. What is it that drew you to, to, to Palestine then in the first place? I mean, because there are, there are obviously more fronts to, to, for the revolution than, than, than just Israel-Palestine. What is it that took you there? Well, there were different things. I mean, first of all, um, I wanted to get out of the States, but I wanted to be political. You see, and there were a lot of places I could have gone. When I finished the university, 
Uh, I have a good friend who moved to Paris at the same time I came to Jerusalem. And we meet once in a while. And I always, when we meet, I always say, hmm, I wonder who made the best decision. <laughs> yeah, I could have been 40 years in Paris now. But, you know, he married a Parisian, a, a, a French woman. His kids speak French and all of that. But he's an expat. He's not going to get up and tell the French how to vote. You see? So this was one of the places, being Jewish, in which I kind of had a, a, a legitimacy here. I could get involved and not be an outsider so much. And uh, so I think that, you know, and, and uh, there is a meaningful thing here. I think the idea, you know, I mean, I've always been against the occupation. I've understood Palestinian rights. But the idea is out here trying to really develop a just society of uh, Palestinians and Israelis in this part of the world and branching out. That was kind of an exciting prospect, you know. So of all the different struggles I could have gotten involved with, this was one of the few that was both strategic and significant, both to me but politically, and also in which I could really play a, a, an active role as, a, as, in a sense, a, a political actor instead of just, you know, somebody from the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as somebody from the outside, I can appreciate the difference. <laughs> so maybe tell us a bit about the the day to day reality of the occupation or the conflict from uh, the Israeli perspective, because we spoke to Taufik Haddad, who told us a lot about what it looks like from Ramallah or Nablus or whatever. What does it look like from Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, or wherever? Well, you know what it looks like from here is that Israel is winning. Uh, Israel, you know, Israel, uh, you know, certainly doesn't want a two-state solution. I mean, that's been gone for a long time. And essentially what we have now is what Israel wants. It's an apartheid situation. Israel controls the entire country from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. If you want a term that captures the whole thrust of Zionism for the last century, that term would be Judaization. It's not a term that's used very often, partly because it sounds vaguely anti-Semitic, even though it's a term that's used officially by the Israeli government. We're Judaizing the Galilee, we're Judaizing Jerusalem. I mean, it's a formal term. It also isn't used often because it doesn't have a legal reference, like occupation or apartheid or ethnic cleansing. In other words, you can't, there's no law about it. But it's a very important term because it really captures the thrust of what the Zionist movement writ large was all about. And that was transforming Palestine into the land of Israel. And, you know, after a century, with all the resources that have been put into it, um, the wars, um, the international support that Israel's received, it's done. It's a done deal. The Judaization process is over. The entire country is today Israel, basically. Um, I would argue even that there's no occupation anymore, that the West Bank has, in fact, become Judea and Samaria with some Palestinian islands. There is no more East Jerusalem. I mean, that disappeared 50 years ago. So you have one country um, in which one population is privileged with all the rights and, and, and has established a system of institutionalized and permanent domination over the other population. So when you have a regime of separation and domination, that's apartheid. 
you know, it doesn't have to be based on race. It can be based on ethnicity, on religion. Uh, I, I, if it's based on the color of your eyes, who cares if you have that kind of a regime? So Israel has that regime uh, today. And uh, in a sense, it's having its cake and eating it too. It's got the entire country. The Palestinians are confined. You know, they're half the population of this country today before the return of refugees. And they're confined to 10% of the land in, in all kinds of little crazy islands. Uh, and, uh, you know, and Israel has 90%. And uh, if I was Netanyahu surveying the political landscape, I don't see any countervailing forces against it. In other words, Israel feels that it can sustain this indefinitely. Um, uh, and so, in a sense, Israel feels now that it's in a mopping up operation. You know, I had another settlement here, another road there, uh, you know, knocked down a few more houses of Palestinians. But basically, it's over. And we're simply, we're simply mopping up. Yeah. Well, um, one of your papers that I, uh, is like a standard reference for me, basically everything I write, is uh, is obviously the matrix of control and the analogy that you used about it being more like a Japanese game of Go rather than a uh, chess. You think that's that you wrote that in? I think it was two thousand. Uh, you wrote that. For 17, 17 years on, has it changed much from that? Is it still a game even, or is it simply the the end? No, I think it's over. It's over. Um. Uh, you know, from Israel's point of view, in other words, it's it's taken the board. <laughs> it's it's uh, completely paralyzed and neutralized the Palestinians. And um, and it's over so that you see. You know. That's the Israeli point of view, obviously, if I agreed with that, I wouldn't be an activist I mean, I'd go home and and do my anthropology right about kinship somewhere. Um, so I don't think it's sustainable and I don't think it's a done deal. And I think it, the Palestinians have a lot of leverage, especially in the international community. But what we're missing is an end game. That's really the thrust of what I, that's really the only thing I want to talk about these days, because you can't be in a political struggle without an end game. BDS is not an end game. We su we supported BDS from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, we supported BDS before it was called BDS. Um, uh, that's not. But BDS is a tool towards some, what are we BDSing for? Is the question. You see, and to say, well, those three principles and the occupation, right of return of refugees, and equal rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel, those are those are principles. And they're guide, but they're not a political program. Well, what does end the occupation mean? And Israel will, will tell you we have ended the occupation actually, <laughs> and we have apartheid. Is that does that work, or do you want something new? In other words, those kinds of general uh, uh, principles aren't a political program. And so I think what are, that's where we are today. Israel is winning because we by. We, I mean, the Palestinian civil society, progressive civil society, our partners, and the Israeli left, especially the non-Zionist left, I don't think we see ourselves as political actors. I think we see ourselves, we protest, we resist, we do popular committees, we go to Berlin every week, 
you know, we write articles, we write books, we have committees, we do all the stuff that we do, but we're not in the game. What do we, you know, let me tell you just a quick little cute story. I was in Asheville, North Carolina a couple years ago, a couple months ago. And I gave my talk and the guy gets up and says, you know what? He says, I've been listening to you for 20 years now. <laughs> okay. And he says, to your credit, Jeff, you vary your presentation. So thank you for that. But I get it already. I get it. Occupation, Palestinians, Israel, human rights. I get it. What do you want? You can't keep coming back all the time and telling me different versions of the same story and, and all the horror stories and this. And What do you want? What I'm mobilizable. I'll, I'll, I'll work for you. I'll support. I'm not going to liberate Palestine from Asheville, North Carolina. You, and by that he means it has to be led by Palestinians. You, Palestinians and Israelis that support them, you have to tell us what you want. And we're not. We don't have any kind of, of an agreement. We all know the two-state solution is gone. Even though there are Palestinians and, of course, many Israelis, that, that it's hard for them to give that up. I mean, led by the Palestinian Authority. But, uh, but we haven't formulated that we want one state, do we want one democratic state, a binational state, a confederation? You know, I mean, there's a lot of alternatives out there. And if we don't sit down and formulate together where we're going, again, led by the Palestinians, of course, I can't tell them what to do. We're not at, we're not in the game. And that's my frustration. This is sustainable for Israel and Israel will win if it has, if there's a vacuum, if there's no, if there's no real opposition, we are today not giving much opposition. And and I and Israel's not very strong. The BDS movement is very strong. Uh, I think everybody sees through Israel's PR. Hasbara has become kind of a joke. Even Jewish students on campuses in, in North America and Europe have left Israel to a large degree. So I think Israel's very vulnerable, and I think it's feeling vulnerable. But as long as there's no concerted, focused political program, uh, you know, the, the, to set against the occupation, Israel can live with end the occupation. You see, it, there's nothing there. There's no pushback there. So unless there's a concerted pushback, Israel will win. And that's my that's really my concern. What I've been sort of amazed by and not spend enough time looking at are the internal dynamics of Israeli politics. The, the, there seems to be a, a, a vast array of complex identities, lots of tensions, and, and, and the, the sheer existence of the Palestinians is, now, is no longer even a major issue for a lot of people. It's become a secondary or third issue. So to tell us what this... If you're an Israeli today, or you are an Israeli today, what if you didn't if you if you didn't care to look, what would you know about the occupation? Know about the what? The occu what? I mean that's part of the issue. We don't even have a vocabulary. You know, you don't use the word occupation in Israel. If I get up and say occupation, kibush in Hebrew, nobody knows what I'm talking about. We don't use the word Palestinians in Israel. Because that gives too much recognition, distinctiveness to a national community we don't want to recognize. So we talk about Arabs. 
We don't use the word West Bank. It's Judea and Samaria. We don't use the word settlements. We call them communities. Settlers are residents of Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. You have a problem with that? Arabs are terrorists, of course, so that fits neatly into everything. And uh, and basically, uh, uh, you know, not only has Israel rendered the Palestinian issue a non-issue here, but it's even erased it, even in terms of the language it's used. You have no language that in which to get a grasp on anything Palestinian. They're just not there. So, uh, yeah, and I think that that's, that's why it's hard to engage with the Israeli public. Um, and that's why our... Now, having said that, you know, I don't think the Israeli public is as right-wing as people assume it is. I think, uh, um, again, it's distracted by other more immediate things. You know, uh, secular religious issues, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi kinds of issues, class things, the latest scandal, the economy, jobs, you know, like a lot of other societies. In the last election, the Haaretz newspaper did a poll. What's on the minds of Israelis? And what we're talking about, Palestinians, occupation, all of that was number 11. So it's not even tertiary. It's, I don't know, there's no word for a number 11 that I know of. So, so, um, but again, you know, but having said that, it's not, I think, because of an opposition. It's just that, uh, first of all, it's not relevant to Israelis. They, and, and you know what? One of the worst, uh, you know, things that happened in a sense, you know, you can't blame it all on the Likud. But Ehud Barak, when he was prime minister, at the end of Camp David, said, there is no Palestinian partner for peace. That became, you know, Barak was the most decorated soldier in Israel's history. He was the prime minister. When he said that, the Israeli public basically disconnected. They disconnected. They washed their hands of the whole thing. And so I think that that's from that time, um, it's become a non-issue. Because the idea is, look, we can wash our hands of this. We're not responsible. We don't have to feel bad that they have a wall going through their land, that they're impoverished. We don't have to feel anything because it's, it, it, they brought it on themselves. It's not our, you know, we wanted peace. We made the generous offer, which is an urban myth, but you know, that's, uh, urban myths are fine for most people. They don't want to go further than that. The Palestinians said no, and that's it, it's over. So that it's not that they hate Palestinians. It's not that I think Israelis have bought into the greater land of Israel idea. That's not the case. If you take the real settlers, the ones that are religious, you know, that God gave us this land and all that, they're 1% of the Israeli population. That's it. So I think that if we can offer to the Israeli public uh, a plan that addresses their concerns as well, um, I think you'd have a chance to actually sell it. The problem being, of course, that the Israelis, again, don't care very much. So that's why you also have to accompany any program uh, aimed at the Israeli public. You have to accompany it with international pressures. And that's where BDS 
comes into to account. I mean, BDS and campaigns are really important, but again, you've got to focus them. You've got to mobilize. You can't just have a BDS campaign and everybody's happy because we've stopped buying Hewlett Packard printers. <laughs> you know, so yeah, so that's sort of the complex dynamic of it all. Okay, um, so that I suppose leads into the next question. Starting at a very basic level, what what are the differences? What was the meaning of these various terms? If you could explain what Zionism means to you, what non-Zionism, anti-Zionism, post-Zionism. I mean, I I don't like the word Zionism at all because uh, because um, you know Zionism that in some ways isn't you know uh, a hard thing to grasp. Zionism for Jews was the, the national movement back to their homeland. It wasn't meant, I think, against if there was anything, it wasn't meant against Palestinians. Palestinians just weren't part of the equation. You know, you're sitting in some ghetto in Minsk somewhere. I mean, what the hell do you know about Palestinians? You know, so it was a self-contained kind of a, a ideology. But, but you know, Israel is a real country. Israel is a country. And you can't confine a country by an ideology. So I tell people, I'm an Israeli these days. You know, in other words, maybe, I don't know the Canadian equivalent, but in the United States, maybe 200 years ago, whether you were a Hamiltonian Democrat or a Jeffersonian Democrat, <laughs> that was a big, that made a big deal. Today, you're an American, you know, and there's a, 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 being an American is not defined by an ideology. I mean, you've got your myths and you've got your values and all that, but it's a country. It evolves. It changes. It's completely different from what George Washington expected. And it's the same of Israel. You can't, I, I don't, I think Israel is a dynamic country. It's changed a lot. I mean, you've got 60,000 African asylum seekers here now that are kind of infiltrating a little bit into the society and not, not all, you know, not all getting deported. You know, you have a growing Palestinian population. You have an ultra-Orthodox Jewish population that you never had before. Jerusalem is 40% ultra-Orthodox Jews that are anti-Zionist. I mean, they're really anti-Zionist. Um, uh, you know, you've got migrant workers, you have foreign, I mean, you know, in other words, Israel's developing and evolving in a way that, you know, Theodor Herzl or Ben-Gurion couldn't have predicted. So that to, to, to call myself a Zionist, I feel, puts me in a box. I say I'm an Israeli, and that's what I'm expecting from the Israeli public, that they should, if we come up with a, with a, a, with a, a program, a political program, that we should be able to talk about it as Israelis and not evaluated by Zionism, some Zionist kind of... Now, Zionism is one element of being Israeli. You know, it has its myths, it has its values and its structures. You can't dismiss it. But I don't like to use that term because if I even if I say I'm a non-anti-Zionist, I'm still accepting that category and trying to put... I just don't think that category defines me. And, I, and I'm not sure if it really defines Israeli society either. Um, because again, it's a much more complex society than than a slogan or that kind of a label can uh, can say. But having said that, uh, you know the difference is between me 
as an as an anti-Zionist, a non-Zionist, whatever, who is that I can I can say I, this is my country and I want to have the best future. So I can envision, for example, a one-state solution. You know what what's best? You know what what I decide what's best for the country isn't based on some ideology. It's based on you know what's developed over the last hundred years or so. For the Zionist left and for Israelis in general that are Zionist, it means there has to be a Jewish state. And so you're locked into a two-state solution. You can't go anywhere else. And that's the problem with Israelis. And I think that's why they've kind of just, you know, uh, they just ignore it all and just shut, shut it out. They know that the two-state solution is gone. They can't go anywhere else. The best thing is just, just you know what, muddle through. Don't push it. Just don't talk about it even, you see. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a dissonance there. But Zion, political Zionism has has reached a dead end. It cannot go any further. It's, it, it's a dead end. And I think a lot of Israelis feel that they're in a dead end. But again, no one is helping them find another way out. And so you end up asserting, you know, your rights, asserting your power. And uh, in a sense, uh, you keep saying to yourself, well, I really want peace. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're doing everything to keep yourself in power and dominance and so on, because because you can't you can't imagine a solution that could be a Zionist. There is no Zionist solution. And at the same time, um, at the same time, you know that. Uh, that this isn't working. <laughs> See, and so you're, I mean, I think Israelis are generally stuck. And I think they have to go beyond Zionism to, to begin to get out of that box and see themselves as Israelis. That was the first of my two-part discussion with Jeff Halper, the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition and author of the new book, War Against the People, Israel, the Palestinians and Global Pacification. Join us next time for part two. This podcast was a production of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Leach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about the forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.